Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Senator Joe Manchin as Shakespeare's Brutus, delivering the death blow to Biden's Build Back Better program, and speak with James Van Nostrand, the director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and joins us to discuss how Manchin's main priority is to keep the dying coal business and his own family's coal business alive, and that his appearance on Fox to announce his objections to the bill based on its cost is a distraction from his real purpose, which is to kill Biden's alternative energy proposals in order to ensure the nation keeps burning coal, one of the worst sources of global warming gas emissions. Then, with reports that Manchin has characterized poor families who get the child tax credit as using the taxpayers' money to buy drugs, we'll speak with Karen Dolan, the director of the Criminalization of Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She joins us to discuss how the efforts by Republican state legislatures to add drug testing to the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program have largely been abandoned because of so few cases, with only 131 applicants having tested positives for drugs in West Virginia since 2017. Then finally, we will speak with one of the authors of a letter signed by 700 scientists and engineers, including 21 Nobel laureates, urging President Biden to use the forthcoming nuclear posture review as an opportunity to cut the U.S. nuclear arsenal by a third and make the change in the sole authority to launch nukes as, quote, an important safeguard against a possible future president who is unstable or who orders a reckless attack. Joining us is Barry Barish, the Lynn Professor of Physics Emeritus at the California Institute of Technology, and the 2017 winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in Physics. He was given a presidential appointment and served on the National Science Board, which oversees the National Science Foundation and advises the President and the Congress on policy issues related to science, engineering, and education. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org, or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is James Van Nostrand, who is director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Van Nostrand. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And you, of course, are very familiar with Joe Manchin, who is in the coal business. His family runs a coal business run by his son. I think it paid him a half a, a million dollars in dividends last year. I believe they recycled sort of coal from abandoned mines. I'm not sure exactly what their business model is, but it's fair to say that Joe Manchin is heavily invested in an industry that recently at the climate talks in Glasgow, the world tried to get rid of coal and had to compromise from phasing out coal to phasing down coal. Yes, I recall that. India was the leading leading the charge on that in terms of getting that language changed at the last minute. So it's just a phase down rather than a phase out, correct? And so 
Where does Manchin stand in terms of being tied to the past, which is poisoning the planet? Well, he clearly has a long background of supporting the coal industry. I mean, he single-handedly, as chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, has pretty much pulled the plug on the major Biden clean energy initiatives, including the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which would have provided $150 billion in revenues to incentivize utilities to decarbonize. Um, and I think he's, he's clearly had a lot of campaign contributions from the from the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry. And I, and I think more importantly, those are the people he, he talks to when he makes statements about how the we, we can't transform the grid quickly, uh, too quickly. It's going to cause the lights to go out, all these concerns about about this decarbonization happening too quickly. I don't think there's there's much in the way of studies that say we can't get that done in the next in the next 10 years. But the people he talks to aren't telling him that. They're telling him we can't get there that fast. And of course, in, in West Virginia, um, we've got uh, coal plants that are just approved by the Public Service Commission stay open another 19 years through 2040. So the president of American Electric Power, Nick Akins, who Joe Manchin talks to fairly regularly, the deal he got in West Virginia from regulators is the ratepayers are going to pay about a half a billion dollars to keep three coal plants open another 19 years through 2040. So he talks about how this transition is underway in the electric utility industry. It's not underway in West Virginia. We're still 90% coal-fired, and that number pretty much hasn't moved over the last 10 years. And is it true or accurate that he meets with the lobbyists from ExxonMobil every week? I only I only know what I read in the in the press accounts. I, I certainly think he he talks more to the fossil fuel industries than he than he does to the organization in West Virginia to which I belong, the West Virginia Climate Alliance. Um, we have we have um, protests scheduled for the next three days at Joe Manchin's office in in Charleston to give us give him some feedback on our what we think in terms of him pulling out of the build back better. So I don't think he listens to us very much compared to the, the listening to the folks in the fossil fuel industry. But the defense of Joe Manchin is, is and I'm sure after his appearance on Fox News, where he basically, like Brutus in Julius Caesar, stuck the knife in Biden, the rationale for why you have to sort of put up with Joe Manchin is that no other Democrat could ever get elected in the state of West Virginia. Is that true? Well, he won only by eighteen thousand votes in in twenty eighteen. Um, you know, I th- I think any other Democrat would have a pretty hard uh, chance of getting elected in West Virginia. He does a great job of constituent services and always maintaining contact with the folks in West Virginia. You know, West we're not that far away from Washington D.C., so he makes it back to the state fairly often. I mean, I. I think that kind of misses the point when we talk about would another Democrat be elected. The point is we have him in office now. He's chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. He is the crit- critical 50th vote to pass anything in the way of Biden's clean energy agenda. And he's a critical vote in terms of potentially bringing back substantial benefits to the citizens of West Virginia. The question is, what is he doing now? Not as well as it okay considering that no other Democrat could could get elected in West Virginia. He is the U.S. Senator from West Virginia, and the question is, what is he doing for West Virginians? Well, that's the question that arises when we hear reports that privately he tells other senators that he doesn't want to extend the child tax credit because poor people getting the child tax credit are spending the money not on the children but on drugs now. This is in the poorest state in the union, isn't it? I mean, is West Virginia the poorest state in America? No, we're the we're the second lowest in terms of median household income. Um, but in terms of that that child tax credit, there were three hundred and five thousand children in West Virginia that qualified in November for that. So we had one hundred eighty one thousand payments totaling seventy nine point one million dollars. An average payment of $438. That's going to be going away at the end of the year, thanks to Joe Manchin. Um, I think there's no question that West Virginia benefits disproportionately from a lot of the measures that were included in the Build Back Better Act, uh, whether it's the child care credit, whether it's the extension of Medicare benefits, um, whether it's providing incentives for training of folks to work in nursing homes and grant to encourage them to, to work in nursing homes. I mean, we have, um, in terms of the, we have the, we have the, third highest percentage of people 65 and over in West Virginia. I think we could benefit from those funds in the in the Build Back Better Act that would have would have provided assistance for training and retention of workers in nursing homes. 
And again, I'm speaking with James Van Nostrand, who's Director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and Professor of Law at West Virginia University College of Law. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So, James, then, you know, my brain's about to explode here because I'm trying to get my head around why would you treat your own constituents who are so needy with such cruelty and such casual cruelty. I just don't understand it, given that the state voted 30% for Trump, and maybe you can forgive them because Trump's a con man and he conned America. He, you know, it was never America first. It's, it was always Trump first, and it continues to be Trump first. So people get taken in by hucksters all the time. But still, what is it about the mentality, if I can use that word, of a state that doesn't want to get helped when it needs help? I think it's still a a disproportionate impact of the Build Back Better, all the clean energy measures that are in there that that cause um, the pause. I mean, there's $555 billion in there for clean energy, so lots of tax incentives for wind and solar, for electric vehicles. Um, I think that's, that's not attractive to the fossil fuel industry, and I think that's a big driver of where Manchin is coming out on this, and I, I don't know that he places as much weight on the other measures in the bill, although he has had that quote about trying to avoid this entitlement mentality, which I find curious coming from him. But there's, uh, I, I think, uh, this the state would benefit from the sort of sort of benefits that are included in the in the build build back better. You know, I, I will give him credit. I do think there's, I do think there's, he has. Uh, one of the points he's made, you know, is some of the the accounting that's done for this bill in terms of that of that child tax credit, for example, which is about 185 billion dollars a year, and so it's it's only in there for a year. And I think one of the points he makes, though, that's not really accurate. If you if you if you price that over 10 years, it's more like 1.6 trillion. So let's really look at at what we're what we're creating in this bill and figure out if that's the direction we want to go. I mean, I think there is a legitimate point there in terms of are we talking about 10 years or are we talking about one year? Because these programs have a way of of continuing once they're once they're adopted. But I, that's that's about the only um, thing I can possibly say to his in, in his defense is, is some of the in, inconsistent treatment. At the same time, um, we have a four-year extension of the of the excise tax on coal production to fund the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. Well, that's in there as well, and he's not supporting that. So um, there's no question that we have retired coal miners in West Virginia who can use benefits from the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund, but Manchin doesn't doesn't seem to care that the four-year extension that's included in Build Back Better is, is also going to be left on the table. Right, but it's one thing to support you know, we know that our, we have a money-driven political system and that the Capitol Hill is awash with lobbyists. And we mentioned earlier that Joe Manchin tends to spend a lot of time with coal and oil and gas lobbyists. That's one thing. But why do the people of the state support these reactionary politics that are, you know, you've got a governor there that used to be a Democrat who comes out of the is a coal baron. You've had that dreadful coal baron I can't remember his name now. Jim Justice. Was, well, Jim Justice is the governor, but there was oh, another yeah. one. Oh, Don was, Blankenship. Yeah, Don yeah, Blankenship, Don Blankenship yeah. exactly. The Dark Lord of Coal. Yeah, so that are these the kind of people that West Virginians admire when they themselves are not getting a slice of the pie? There's no question there's a big disconnect in terms of the politicians for whom West Virginians will vote versus the politicians who actually um, deliver benefits and and good outcomes for West Virginia. A big disconnect. I mean, part of that is the is the state's long history of of pride in in the coal industry in terms of industrializing the American, um, basically energizing the industrial revolution on the backs of the West Virginia coal miners. I mean, that's pretty much the way folks think. And you have this long history of pride in in the coal industry, and you have politicians that that tap into that. Um, you know, when Manchin ran against Patrick Morrissey to get elected and reelected in 2018, it was who hates the EPA more, who loves the coal industry more. That's the kind of battle 
you're talking about there, and it was a close race because they both have done serious battle against the EPA. But but that's and so those sorts of things resonate, and you don't really have anybody having the tough conversations about, you know, I mean, Jim Justice got reelected on a slogan that said Jim Justice he never gave up on coal. I mean, that's what he was elected on just in just one year ago, right? And it's it, but that it seems to work. He got elected with 65 percent of of the vote. But no, there's there needs to be some connect the dots in terms of vote for people who are going to act in the best interest of West Virginia because we now have a very powerful U.S. senator who's leaving billions and billions of dollars on the table um, that could be brought back to to West Virginia. And you think about Joe Manchin is in Robert Byrd's seat. Robert Byrd would not be saying no to the Build Back Better Act, citing nonsense about the national debt and inflation like Joe Manchin is. I mean, Joe Manchin is completely disregarding all the studies that have been done in terms of whether this bill pays for itself. Is it going to contribute to inflation? The things he's saying is completely unsupported by any any detailed analysis, but yet he's going to still talk about inflation. He's still going to talk about the national debt. Um, and those are not the thing, kind of things that Robert Byrd would be saying when he was chair of the Appropriations Committee and thinking about whether or not he's going to bring back a billion dollars in, in pork to West Virginia. It was a no-brainer for him. But with our senator, it's more like what does the fossil fuel industry want rather than what does West Virginia need? And, of course, Manchin does not, along with cinema, refuses to raise revenues to pay for these programs. So right. when he complains about inflation and the debt, uh, that's completely <laughs> disingenuous, isn't it? Yeah, he, he single-handedly. I mean, I, I think the original Biden proposal was to basically reverse the Trump tax cuts, get the corporate tax rate back up to 28%. He said, no, I, I can't live with that, maybe 25%. He personally opposed the billionaire tax. Well, I think since Jim Justice gotten got into financial troubles, I don't think – I think he's our only billionaire, and now we don't have any in West Virginia. So why Joe Manchin would oppose um, – taxing fairly the billionaires is beyond me. But yeah, it's like he's, he's going to complain about the, the contribution of the bill to the national debt, but he won't do anything to support increasing the, the taxes to actually pay for these, pay for this increase in spending. He opposes that as well, even though it doesn't have any basis in terms of the economics of West Virginia. So in the last couple of minutes then, um, James Van Nostrand, how do you think this is going to play in West Virginia? Is he going to be seen as this independent hero standing up against the liberal establishment? Or is he going to be seen as the Grinch who stole Christmas? I think closer to the latter. I mean, I, I think um, I don't know that continue to be an advocate for fossil fuel and taking a pass on all the clean energy jobs that we could be bringing to West Virginia. I'm not sure that's going to continue to be a, a winning a winning narrative, and I think people are going to be looking at at all of the all the different pieces of the Build Back Better, all the disproportionate benefits that would have been conferred upon West Virginia. I think they're going to look at that and say, why did why did Manchin say no to all that? I, I think that's going to have some staying power, and I mean, we'll see. Like I say, the organization I belong to, we're, we're planning protests at Manchin's office in in. Charleston over the next two or three days with a number of different organizations involved. I think we're trying to get that message out there. He's not speaking for West Virginia, and he's not speaking and he's not acting in a way that's consistent with the best interests of most West Virginians. And overall, though, I mean, do you think there's a point where he can be pushed too far? Because clearly Democrats are furious and the progressives in the House who didn't trust him and didn't want to pass the bipartisan bill because they wanted to have leverage against him because they didn't think at the end of the day he would actually support the human infrastructure bill. Well, it turns out they were right. So there's a lot of anger. But how much could that anger push him over the limit where he could walk across the aisle and then you'd have Mitch McConnell as the majority leader of the Senate? Well, it could very well be the impact in terms of enacting Biden's uh, agenda wouldn't not be that much different. I mean, um, Manchin is pretty much single-handedly stopping the the major clean ed- clean energy initiatives of the Biden agenda. Whether even as a Democrat, uh, I don't know how much worse it could be if 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 he were a Republican. Um, but so I I don't know. It's I think everybody's kind of throwing up their hands saying, how do you, how do we deal with this guy? Well, I think he's been dealt with kid gloves. Now I think people are saying, well, maybe we need to be 
be tough running. Whether you would actually switch parties, I I don't think he has a long history of being a, a Democrat. I, and I don't think his relations with Mitch McConnell is all that good. Um, but, you know, th this path hasn't worked, trying to give him everything he, he wants and having cabinet secretaries come to West Virginia and tour coal mines and that that pandering to him hasn't seemed to have worked. So maybe there's a different path that might be more effective. Well, James Van Nostrand, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with James Van Nostrand, who is Director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a Professor of Law at West Virginia University College of Law. He is representative of energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We're going to take a brief station break and be back looking into reports that Senator Joe Manchin has characterized poor families who get the child tax credit as using the taxpayer's money to buy drugs. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Karen Dolan, who's the Director of the Criminalization of Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Dolan. Thank you, Ian. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Joe Manchin, of course, dropped this bombshell on Fox News that in itself, I think, is a poke in the eye to the Democrats being on Fox, where on Sunday he said that he just can't bring himself to vote for the Build Back Better plan, which kills Biden's signature proposal and eviscerates his and the Democrats' agenda. And in sort of Shakespearean terms, it feels a lot like Brutus sticking the knife in Caesar. So how does it strike you? Well, I would make the argument, I don't think Joe Manchin ever was Brutus. I think brutal is probably a better description of Joe Manchin. I don't know that he was ever necessarily on board. I, I don't believe he negotiated in good faith, but that is just uh, a guess on, on my part. But certainly uh, from the way he has ended things here right before Christmas has Really, it's more important that the slap to the face has been to the American people. Uh, I don't know politically what he's been saying behind closed doors with President Biden, but he has betrayed certainly his constituents and the hardworking families of the United States. Well, apparently behind the doors, and he does say to other senators and others that he thinks that the, child, the people who get the child tax credit will use that money not to feed and clothe and educate their children, but to spend that money on drugs. Yes, I think that, that you know, those kinds of reports really do reveal what's going on in his mind. And whatever, um, whatever he comes up with to justify his actions, uh, I think everything... Uh, really needs to point to who is he serving uh, by denying health care, education, help with child care, that ch child tax credit that is so important to millions of children and families. He's not helping them, so who is it that he's helping? Um, and I think it's really critical for us as people who need this aid and as social movements who have been working for this for decades uh, that we are that we are not cowed by Joe Manchin. It's social movements that brought us where we are and we're certainly not stopping because of someone like him. So is there a path forward? I mean Senator Sherrod Brown of course who's a big proponent for it is trying to figure out how to proceed but the last payment was on December the 15th, and there won't be a payment on January the 15th. That's right. There won't be a payment on January 15th. However, if somehow the 
Senate is able to pass a separate child tax credit extension or simply uh, an extension of the American Rescue Plan from which the child tax credit was enhanced, uh, there could still be a payment later in January, or if it took longer, there could be, for instance, a double payment in February. There are possibilities, but certainly they're made much more difficult, and the path forward is much less clear, easy, or perhaps even possible because of Joe Manchin's obstructionism. I think that there are some choices, some political vehicles on Capitol Hill that can be undertaken, but unfortunately they will take time. And if we miss, if we miss the, we'll miss the uh, January 15th as, as when families are expecting and budgeting for that extra money to appear in their, in their bank accounts. Um, so that will be missed anyway. If they're able to get it later in January, it might not be terrible. But if they miss January altogether, that can be a, a whole missed rent payment or inability to get to a job or lack of food or um, the ability to help children at school. So missing just one month is a big deal. Uh, some of it can partially be made up if there's a double payment in February, but Congress is, Senate is going to have to do something. Unfortunately, whatever it is that they're able to do at this point looks like it will be kind of slapdash um, and temporary, but we do hope there will be some sort of emergency stopgap uh, responses to help to keep those 10 million children who are lifted out of poverty from the enhanced tax credit from sliding back into it. And the tax credit pays $300 per child under six and 250 for kids under 18 for two-parent households earning less than 150000 annually and single parents earning less than 112000 and parents don't need to have earned money or to owe taxes in order to qualify. So it has been the most successful program to raise children out of poverty in American history, has it not? That's right. And so uh, if they can get that enhancement extended, what's really important about that, what you said, uh, in terms of people's income level prior to the enhancement under the American Rescue Plan last spring, many children, up to 27 million children, were ineligible for either the full or partial uh, tax credit because their parents didn't earn enough money. So if you can think of how kind of perverse our system is that, the, that people can be too poor for help. And the American Rescue Plan made a critical change to that so that no matter how poor you are, you're eligible to get help. And that is critical that that stays available. It's also critical that it stays available monthly because that's how people that are living paycheck to paycheck or trying to live paycheck to paycheck, that is the way that they can stay afloat and keep their family afloat. And despite what Joe Manchin said with his very cynical, frankly, lying statement that families would use the extra money for drugs, there has been plenty of surveys uh, done, and nine out of ten of the people who use, who receive this money, this is up through, as you said, $150,000 income, um, use it for essentials like food, housing, education. Well, again, I'm speaking with Karen Dolan, who is the director of the Criminalization of Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. So... During Barack Obama's administration, congressional Republicans and state legislatures around the country added this requirement called Temporary Assistance to Needy Families Program. They added this drug testing protocol, and many states have enacted these uh, drug testing policies from 2011 through 2017, but on average, they've resulted in less than 1% of the applicants testing positive for drugs, so much so that many states have abandoned this drug testing program. And West Virginia has been screening for drugs in its poverty program from 2017 and found that only 131 applicants tested positive for drugs, which, of course, is an incredibly small fraction. So 
apparently that information is not getting to Joe Manchin. No, none of the facts about this bill uh, move Joe Manchin. None of the stories of his constituents move Joe Manchin. So it just leaves one to wonder who is he serving as the Poor People's Campaign has a chant as they protest in, in front of his office, which side are you on, Joe? It's clearly not on the side of the facts. This is a bill that 17 Nobel economists have said will not, not only will not add to uh, inflation, but it does have pieces of it that relieve inflation. Not only are the programs paid for, but they uh, pay down the deficit in the second 10 years. So all of the objections that we hear coming from Joe Manchin are all demonstrably false. So we know that he is not moved either by facts, by truth, or by the stories of his own constituents. So is this a problem, though, that goes beyond West Virginia, Karen Dolan, this cruelty towards the poor, this contempt for the poor? I mean, we know that our legislatures in our money-driven political system spend their days dialing for dollars. They're, in fact, telemarketers. And so if you spend too much time or most of your time talking to wealthy people and lobbyists representing wealth and power. Do you think it kind of rubs off on you? Well, sure. I mean, as you said, so there's a couple problems there. One is, of course, the way in which politics are funded. You know, we have dark money and uh, we have corporate corporations that are being called individuals and that can give. It's, uh, <laughs> they're, they're the ways that uh, politicians get funded to, to, to run again. Um, so that's that's one problem. But the other problem that you started off with, this false narrative about poverty being a personal failing or a character flaw, that's something that's persisted throughout uh, American history for a very long time, despite the fact that we have been uh, very close to the situation where almost half of the United States, uh, where almost half of our population has been at one time or another poor or low income. And as the Poor People's Campaign would say now, about 140 million people uh, live uh, either in poverty or just above poverty or 200% of the poverty, which we consider to be low income. So it's a very vast amount of people in this country and the wealthiest country in the nation who are either poor or low income. Yet this uh, conservative uh, ideological false narrative of poverty being a character flaw has persisted. However, it has begun to change since the pandemic sort of laid bare the precarious nature that so many of us have been existing under. So much so that that narrative, that false narrative is starting to weaken a little bit. And the Build Back Better bill really expressed um, the dismantling to some extent of that narrative. However, Joe Manchin is trumpeting that line very loudly. Well, of the percentage of Americans that you just mentioned who have experienced poverty, that's certainly not reflected in the makeup of the House and Senate. As far as I know, Congresswoman Cory Bush is about the only member of either the House or Senate who has explicitly said that she's, you know, been homeless and poor. Do you know of any others, I mean, that have experienced poverty that are in the House or Senate? Well, I think that Barbara Lee had said that she had been raised and at some point by a single mother had been, I don't know if she was living in a car, but I mean, they're very few. Um, I think there are a couple of members of Congress who did actually come from from poverty, and then there are other members who claim to have come from poverty, but their understanding of it and the way in which they wield it still go, they're not in poverty currently, um, and they are the vast majority of them on the Republican side of the aisle, uh, including Joe Manchin, are wielding this false narrative uh, in a way to keep the policies helping the wealthy, helping the corporate, helping the donor class at the expense of the rest of us. And Joe Manchin lives on a yacht in the Potomac and drives a Maserati. I know about the yacht. I didn't know about the Maserati. 
but yes, yeah. I mean, I think um, he's a he is a prime example of what's wrong with Congress. So, how do you in your in the work that you do as the director of the Criminalization of Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, Karen Dolan, just in the last few minutes, how do you deal with this mindset that you say is you know almost an American tradition? this contempt for the poor and blaming the poor for their condition. How do you break that spell? Well, I think we do it in at least three ways. One is partnering with social movements. So the Institute for Policy Studies, we create our our papers, our reports. We do our research not for policymakers, as so many think tanks do. We do it for social movements so that social movements on the ground are have the facts uh, at their disposal. And we help them to frame the issues in a way that counteracts these false narratives and lies uh, about the state of the economy and inequality and racism in this country. We also help to tell people's stories, the real stories, the 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 stories that tell the truth about how we live, what are our values, what are our goals, what do policies need to be so that we can dismantle those false narratives. And we also, uh, our, our research uh, and analysis is also available to policymakers who want to avail themselves of it. So we um, have all of that available so that these false narratives can be countered and so that when Joe Manchin says things that are not true or when any member of Congress, any Republican member, any Democratic member, any independent member, anyone who says things that are that are not true, we have the facts and figures to tell the right story. So just in closing though, I don't know whether it's true, but it's often said that the poor don't vote. And if that is true, and I, I somehow doubt it is true, but if it is true, is that a problem that our legislators don't care about the poor because they don't vote? Well, what's true is that the obstruction of voting rights, the dismantling of voting rights, disproportionately affect poor people and black and brown people, indigenous people, immigrants. In the last election uh, in 2020, when Joe Biden won, there was record turnout of poor people. I would argue that poor and low-income people elected Joe Biden, uh, which also means there's a mandate for Joe Biden and the Democrats to come through for the people who elected them. But those rights, um, though that, that turnout that we've been able to see uh, recently and also the increase recently in the youth vote all of that is uh, in danger, as we've seen so many states around the country pass uh, obstruction, voter obstruction legislation. So the other critical, or I'd say the most critical legislation really um, before Congress right now is comprehensive voting rights. And that really has to happen or their democracy is just is, is done. Um, so we have seen an increase in poor and low-income people voting and an increase in the youth vote. Um, but all of that is very precarious unless voting rights is passed. And again, that will take Joe Manchin um, to be on board, which he says that he is in terms of voting rights, but it can't happen without a carve-out to the filibuster, and that he says he's opposed to. And the Christmas break's coming up on the 23rd, so they're not going to do uh, voting rights. No, they're... they're they're not. They are. Their business is done. They're going home for their nice holiday break. Although there is a special Democratic Senate caucus meeting tomorrow night, uh, because many of the Democrats are are livid with Joe Manchin. I don't have high expectations for what will come out of that. But regardless of what happens on Capitol Hill, we have to remember they only have power in so far as we give them power to some extent. We have we have mentioned the corporate money. We've mentioned the voter obstruction. We've mentioned the ways in which uh, we are challenged to really achieve the democracy that we 
hope or pretend that we have as a nation. However, we do have power as people. This is why we even had a Build Back Better bill to begin with. All of those things that are called for in the bill are things that social movements have been fighting for for decades. We wouldn't have gotten there without the, the personal lived experience of people without advocates, without researchers, without people on the streets. And we need to keep that up. We can't stop. Well, Karen Dolan, I thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a happy holidays. Thank you. Same to you, Anne. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Dolan, who's the director of the Criminalization of Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with one of the Nobel Prize winning authors of a letter to President Biden, urging him to use the forthcoming nuclear posture review as an opportunity to cut the U.S. nuclear arsenal by a third and make the change in the sole authority to launch nukes as an important safeguard against a possible future president who is unstable or who orders a reckless attack. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barry Barish, who is the Lynn Professor of Physics Emeritus at the California Institute of Technology and the 2017 winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics for his contribution to the study of gravitational waves. He was given a presidential appointment and served on the National Science Board, which oversees the National Science Foundation and advises the President and the Congress on policy issues related to science, engineering, and education, and is a signatory to an open letter to President Biden calling for a new national strategy for managing nuclear weapons. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barry Barish. Thanks, Ian. Hi. I'm here. Well, thanks for joining us, Barry. And... Uh, the nuclear posture review is being um, debated within the Biden administration. Obviously, it's a top secret process, but you and 700 scientists and engineers, including 21 Nobel Prize winners, have asked President Biden in a letter you sent on Thursday to use this forthcoming nuclear posture review as a way to come up with a new strategy and particularly to cut the arsenal, the U.S. arsenal, by a third and declare for the first time that the United States would never be the first to use nuclear weapons in a conflict. And also, you want to add important safeguards against a possible future president who is unstable or who orders a reckless attack. So I must say, I think most of our listeners would agree with that, but you're up against an entrenched interests, I guess, here, in, and I'm not entirely sure why we have such a powerful nuclear lobby, but we do. So any sense of how this is landing at the White House? Well, the first thing is the process. The, the Every president has a review of the nuclear, it's called the Nuclear Posture Review. Uh, and that's about to land on Biden's desk or in the administration, but it's created by the Defense Department. So that's where we start. Uh, and uh, our hope is that our input helps Biden not just accept what comes from the Defense Department, which we expect will be pretty much status quo, but will respond to the points that we made. So the procedure basically is that there are several initiatives that, that we talk about that actually Obama already talked about, like reducing he did a study and talked about reducing to uh, by 30%, which would be 1,000, the number of uh, arms. So this is not all new, and we're not trying to be very uh, radical, actually. Uh, it, it Maybe it seems radical in the sense of not letting one person decide entirely that he can pull the trigger, and we just think that's common sense. But otherwise, the policies are are basically what people have been pushing for uh, even during the uh, Obama administration. Obama was sympathetic, but 
never never took action on several of these. Uh, Biden's past history or past uh, talks are consistent with what we say. For example, uh, we talk about uh, that there should be a specific statement that declares that the United States will not use nuclear weapons first. Uh, Biden, I think I, I can quote you what he said in 2017, which is not so long ago. Uh, he said the following, quote, it's hard to envision a plausible scenario in which the first use of nuclear weapons by the United States would be necessary or make sense. And during his presidential campaign, he said the sole purpose, quote, the sole purpose of the U.S. nuclear arsenal should be deterring and, if necessary, retaliating against a nuclear attack. So our first point, which is to make a uh, that he should declare a statement that we won't use nuclear weapons first, we believe is consistent with at least where he stood before he was president and would be a very welcome statement around, I think, around the world in terms of the posture of the U.S. And that's that's the first uh, point that we made. The The second one, just let me go through them quickly. The, the second one was to try to modify the president's authority to solely be responsible to use nuclear weapons, that there should be a procedure by which he has concurrence by whoever we set it up, but uh, to make the presidential order. And there's no problem technically in doing that. We have all the people that would be involved are under the Federal um, Emergency Management Agency tracking, and so they can be contacted immediately. And so it isn't a problem. It's a problem of process, not a problem of uh, whether it can be uh, implemented. The third one I talked about already, and that was that we should, we can reduce the number of strategic nuclear weapons now, Obama even said so, uh, to 1,000, which would be a welcome statement around the world without, without jeopardizing the U.S. security. And that was the result of a study that was made during the Obama administration. Uh, the last one was the fourth one that we made. The fourth point was that there's a plan to replace the ICBMs, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, in 2029 with a new generation. And we believe that that's a very early decision to move in a direction that makes it very hard to disarm in the future. And uh, upgrading and, and keeping active what we have is perfectly feasible and has been studied and could be done for another 20 years. So we urge them not to uh, deploy, not to take on uh, spending $100 billion on a new replacement missile uh, force. So that's basically the points. And uh, we, you know, we, we made the timing at about the time that we hope it'll be considered. And a lot of People who have been advisors to the administration or important scientists and knowledgeable people have uh, signed on to the letter. And again, I'm speaking with Barry Barish, who's the Lynn Professor of Physics Emeritus at the California Institute of Technology and the 2017 winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics for his contributions to the study of gravitational waves. He was given a presidential appointment and served on the National Science Board, which oversees the National Science Foundation and advises the President and the Congress on policy issues related to science, engineering, and education. And he is the signatory of an open letter to President Biden calling for a new national strategy for managing nuclear weapons. And the fact that Biden has deferred to science in terms of dealing with COVID and is up against uh, science denial which is perpetuating the pandemic, unfortunately. I'm not sure what can be done with those people who, who are also pro-Trump who won't get vaccinated, but at least he's making a stand in favor of science. So are you encouraged by that? And do you think that the fact that he's making a stand for science on COVID means that he could make a stand on nuclear weapons from the advice from the scientific community with 700 scientists and engineers, along with 24 Nobel laureates, urging him in this letter you sent on Thursday? Uh, th that's certainly our hope. Uh, it's certainly consistent with statements he's made in the past. And uh, his, he does. I, the only problem, I think, logistically is this 
statement that he's going to make starts from um, a document that will come from the Defense Department. So we don't expect it to sound like this. It will take action at, at his level and his top advisors. But I think their attitudes have been consistent with responding positively to our, our uh, initiative, which aren't very radical, I think. Well, there hasn't been a use of a nuclear weapon in anger since uh, Nagasaki, but that's not to say that we've been incredibly lucky. I mean, there were a number of near misses, and not just the Cuba crisis, but also the 19, 1983 war scare over the NATO Able Archer exercise. And then prior to that, that was in November of 83, and in October of 83, the Russian early warning system, Crocus and Kazbar, they detected five Minuteman missiles heading towards the Soviet Union. It turned out to be a, a sort of refraction of light from some clouds that had given them this false reading. And they had an automatic dead hand that would have just retaliated the entire Soviet arsenal, would have just fired at the United States in response to this incoming perception of Minuteman missiles, only five, and the launch officer, Colonel Petrov, overrode the dead hand because he figured if the Americans are going to strike, they're not going to strike us with five nuclear weapons. They're going to throw the whole lot at us. Uh, he overrode the system mercifully. The world was saved, and, of course, he got demoted as a result of his actions. That's just one of many incidences. Right. The, so, I, I, I think just uh, to jump on that point just for a second... Uh, the real problem is that the, we are based on these silos with Minutemen missiles, which have to respond very quickly. And if instead we completely move to the submarine-based SLBMs, uh, they don't have to respond so quickly. So in addition to making the system not respond by accident, uh, it's much more forgiving if we really got rid of the silos. So... How do you deal with critics like the head of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, who, in responding to the the letter that you and your colleagues have sent to the president on Thursday, urging the U.S. renounce no first use, he said that no first use is feel-good foreign policy. Our enemies wouldn't take the commitment seriously, and it would undermine the confidence of our friends. Well, I just, what can I say? I disagree with that. I think I think they would see it as a very positive signal. And, uh, I, and I don't think it damages our ability to protect ourselves. And if we really believe that the nuclear um, arsenal is, a, is to be used for deterrence, then I don't think there's any reason to not have a, a, a policy that's totally consistent with that. So... The one part of your letter that certainly resonates with me is that you are implying that we're, I mean, maybe you're not implying, I'll ask you whether or not you are, that we got lucky uh, to get through the Trump era because Trump is sort of mentally unstable and vindictive and, and petty. And the idea is that you want to have safeguards now that would prevent such a president in the future from a reckless and impulsive move. Yeah, I, I don't think the intent of everybody that signed the letter might be exactly that. But certainly for me personally, I think it's a good illustration that at least where we can imagine having one person in charge who is not totally stable could lead to the end of all of us. So I, I think um, basically it may be what we've gone through with the past few years may illustrate very strongly that we need a policy that goes beyond one person being able to push the button. So in terms, though, of these new threats that are emerging, like cyber attacks, are nuclear weapons sort of receding as the worst possible use of force? As I said, we've been lucky. There hasn't been a nuclear weapons used in anger since Nagasaki, but cyber attacks could cripple an entire country, particularly developed countries like the United States. Yeah, crippling is different than wiping you out. And the trouble with we've lost our memory that, Nag that Nagasaki and Hiroshima were little explosions compared to what's possible in a nuclear war today. 
we're now almost 80 years or so for away from that, and there's just not enough memory of what can really the devastation would be. Uh, I think a cyber can be very uh, disabling, a cyber attack, but it's really not the same as nuclear war, which is unspeakable and something we've got to stay away from. And how would you just in the last few minutes then, Barry Barish, tie your the request in your letter to the president in terms of the new nuclear posture review to arms control and dealing with the Russians and the Chinese? Because there's been some somewhat exaggerated concerns about China's growing arsenal and particularly hypersonic weapons, which from my understanding are largely mythical. But nevertheless, you hear, you keep hearing this drumbeat, uh, which, of course, we heard throughout the entire Cold War, of the missile gap and the bomber gap, and now you're going to have a hypersonic missile gap. Yeah, um, and undoubtedly, whether they have what they have now, we don't really know, but it certainly is. That's the problem we have now. Every time there's any sort of indication that maybe China or Russia or some spread, which I fear more, the spread of nuclear weapons beyond the big powers, uh, then we react and make things uh, worse here in terms of of our own raising the stakes on our side as well. Hypersonic uh, missiles are real. Uh, it is a, it's always easier to have offense and defense. It is possible to get rid to, to uh, challenge them, but it's if we're in a business where we're trying to develop offensive weapons, it's always a hard thing to to keep up with them. And uh, these missiles that go at five Mach, five times the speed of sound, are really a big problem if you wanted to handle them. I think we just have to try to reduce everything. Uh, it, we are capable, and other countries will be capable of making. Uh, the ability to destroy each other. And somehow we have to politically back off of that. And you feel that Biden, if he starts taking your advice, that this would be an incentive for the Russians and the Chinese to join in a similar regime? Yeah, I, I didn't see it, but the Russians turned in something to NATO in the last day or two. How did, did you happen to see it? Yeah. Uh, no, indeed. It, the, it's worth remembering that in the last recent time when Putin massed over 100,000 troops on the, the border of Ukraine, he also put the Russian nuclear arsenal on full alert, on the top alert. So we can't afford this kind of brinkmanship. It's no, no, we can't. And so somehow this is a small step and, and hopefully they, they would follow suit and that you start moving things back instead of escalating at each step. Well, Barry Barish, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And nice to talk to you. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Barry Barish, who's the Lynn Professor of Physics Emeritus at the California Institute of Technology and the 2017 winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics for his contributions to the study of gravitational waves. He was given a presidential appointment and served on the National Science Board, which oversees the National Science Foundation and advises the President and the Congress on policy issues related to science, engineering and education and is a signatory to an open letter to President Biden calling for a new national strategy for managing nuclear weapons. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice is saying something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land One more light goes out in